Hello and welcome to the latest episode of GraphQL Radio. I am here with Dylan, who is the head of global e-commerce technology at Puma and spent the last years revamping Puma's technology to go from an old setup where e-commerce wasn't very prioritized to a world now where their whole e-commerce organization has one of the most modern setups I've seen in recent history and is fully based, of course, on GraphQL, hence why we're talking today. Dylan, thanks so much for coming on and I would love to kick off with kind of just your personal background. You have a really interesting story because you were a developer originally, right? Yeah, Max, thanks for having me. This is exciting. I'm honored to be invited to talk GraphQL and technology. I was a, a weak developer, but a developer for many years. So I studied computer science and systems analysis at university, and then was building websites and web apps and supporting those in production for many industries, lots of different clients. And along the way, you know, kind of end up touching a little bit of everything. And so at that point, I guess you're you're qualified to do more or help lead more. And then the projects just get bigger and more complicated. And the fun thing is there ends up being just fewer and fewer people who have tried to tackle such big problems. And so then you end up in a, in a fairly small pool of others that are really doing the same thing. And one thing that's fun about that is it gets way less competitive. So when you stop saying like, we're, we're making websites and you start building more, there's just this camaraderie and people are trying to do it together. They're actually maybe working at different companies, meeting up at conferences, talking about what worked, what didn't. Then you've got startups trying to solve these problems, fill in the gaps like Steli, and that's where it gets really exciting. Like, okay, here's a problem. People have solved it, or they've solved it in a PhD context. Nobody's actually put it into practice yet. Those are really cool. So I'm always trying to follow that stuff. Hacker News is my favorite place to find a good way to waste an hour. Uh, but in <laughs> doing that, you end up finding really interesting things. And so then getting to Puma, we needed to do a lot of work. There was a lot of legacy systems. They weren't connected. And early days, it was really just bringing, um, I guess, more of a technical approach to the way the business was running. And then once we were able to do some of the basics, then we could start moving faster. And then we could start doing things that were more complex because we reduced the old complexity to a more simplified approach. So we were able to take on the next level of complexity. And that's where GraphQL enters the equation. Maybe let's, let's start at the beginning of your journey at Puma. What was the situation when you came into the company? What were you kind of hired to do? And what was the, the leadership team trying to accomplish by bringing on this seemingly brand new role of head of global e-commerce technology? At the time, it was a new role. And it was a senior specialist of platform development. And what I guess the scenario was, you have different countries putting up their own e-commerce front end, their own store. And that might be running on something like Salesforce Commerce Cloud or Magento and others. But then if that was the, the presentation of their catalog and the brand in that market, there is this whole process behind how the creative content and also the, that PIM data, the catalog, the promotions arrived there, the pricing. And so what was being done was stabilizing that master data concept so that the pricing, the inventory, and the catalog are all arriving in a consistent way. And that, looking back, seems very simple, but it is really difficult. And you've got all of these different systems and you're coordinating with SAP, with warehouse systems locally, all the different ways people manage their prices. Some are in Excel. Some people are trying to do some sort of AI logic. There's a lot of things that, that vary country to country. And these are the types of problems I hadn't solved before because my clients were mostly domestic. And if people are going international, they're really doing that in a, in a marketing branding way not necessarily operationally direct to consumer in every country. That's where it gets hairy. And that's what needs to be solved, in my opinion, for a big organization to move quickly. If you can't have a, a consistent interface for these data points, then you really can't centralize where the data is going to come from. And you also can't expect every single division of the organization to build up this entire tech stack. It's nonsense. So then you've got a decision to make. Either we're going to deal with the level of quality that nobody's really comfortable with, or we're going to have to centralize some functions. 
and all agree that maybe it's not perfect for everybody, but this is actually bringing the status quo up to a level. That's what we would want. So Dylan is this person, I'm just thinking back, is, is this person who has worked in kind of national e-commerce organizations that are focused on one country uh, in the US and kind of just sailing to that one country. And you've built up a community of peers around you that are working in similar roles and similar organizations and you're kind of all working together to further technology at these organizations. Which actually, when when you were mentioning that, that reminds me of the open source community. I, I invented a CSS and JS library called Style Components and that many people use. And there's many other CSS and JS libraries too that came out around the same time. And from the outside, whenever I went to conferences, people always asked me, like, what was the beef? You know, how are you thinking about these other libraries? Like, who's fighting whom? And I always said, it's the exact opposite, right? We're all working together, trying to come up with the best way to write CSS in this component world. And nobody's really fighting. Like, we're all just kind of sharing ideas. You know, we're all like, oh, we tried this and shipped it, but it didn't really work for these reasons. Now we're trying something else. And then somebody else will go, oh, you know what? If you're trying that, I think we could do this. And that might be really interesting. And it kind of, it's this rising tide lifts all boats or whatever that English saying is, yeah, where we all right. kind of work together to make everything better. And it sounds like a similar community existed in the e-commerce space. And then it sounds like Puma, the situation now changed a little bit where you're no longer building for one national um, kind of organization, but you're not having to work with a huge organization that spans the globe. And just for me to clarify, you're saying every region or, or, or every kind of um, individual department at Puma had their own e-commerce implementation and backend. And so some people were using Salesforce Commerce Cloud and some people were using Magento and some people were using whatever else. Is that right? Exactly. Wow. That seems like a lot of complexity. How, how many different systems were running when you joined Puma? Do you know? <laughs> I can't do the permutation in my head anymore, but it was... Uh... So when I started, there were seven different regions, but then at the country level, Europe, for example, would be one. So then you have 20 some countries. It kind of depends on the year, which ones are United Kingdom, which ones are Europe <laughs> and, um, and then Ukraine floating. So it's, uh, it's always shifting, which is one extra layer onto this mm. puzzle. So now you finally settle it like, okay, well, we've, we've got Europe handled. And then they're like, well, actually we don't because now Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland, and England are no longer part of Europe. So just carve out that part and put that over here and tell all of the systems, only in that case do you get the information from over here. Now, completely different catalog, different pricing, different employees move their offices. So those are the types of things that the response from the technology teams is, like, yes, we can do it. When do you need this done? Like, well, how fast can you get it done? And that was always the question. So then you end up with this unplanned work. You know, Brexit, everyone knew it was coming for a long time, but you still have to do it. And then there's dependency on others. And the ERP systems are always the slowest process in any organization I talk to. They're always, if we've got an ERP implementation, it's two years late. The people working on it are tired. The changes are constant, but everyone else depends on that data. And so there's this layered dependency problem. And these are the types of issues that, again, if, it, if it's domestic, if it's more simplified, you can solve them in a lot of different ways or different places in the stack. But if you really are trying to centralize some core data stores and make that interface consistent across the world, you have to wait. Like it doesn't help you to set up a different ERP because it would be faster. Now you completely ruined the concept of ERP and that doesn't help you in the long run either. So it's a, it's a constant trading and juggling and then where GraphQL kind of can come in and solve some of that so that you don't have to delay some of the innovative changes that you're needing that the business is requiring to stay relevant but you do actually require a different skill set from the development team that you probably have. Either they need to level up or you actually need some different people. And that was one of the challenges that we faced. What was Puma's kind of engineering organization or technological organization like when you joined? And how did that change over the years of you being there? It's been external development the whole time. So using oh, wow. you know, SIs, system integrators, and they would be usually selected based on their experience level with that the major elements of the technology in that 
country. So then focused heavily around Narke, Salesforce, and Magento. And then that ecosystem of partners around those as the core shopping technology. And then so then as you layer your architectural diagram, ERP, PIM, some digital asset management being at kind of the bottom layer for us is central and core to Puma. Then on top of that, you'd be looking at how are you going to bring in order management and warehouse management as very localized implementations, but needs to feed and come back together in another layer. So then this is where people are putting in an enterprise service bus or some middleware that aggregates these systems that otherwise there just would never be time to make them talk to each other. That is imported into that e-commerce tool, which is we kind of selected based on the best investment choice at the time. And then our job is to take whatever's there and piece together a digital business that can keep running and be quick enough and competitive enough. And so then the, the next stage was make sure this whole investment is still valuable. And in order to actually unlock the next, I guess, opportunity as far as business growth and brand value, you need to be able to iterate quickly on the front end. And that was where we were falling down, at least in my opinion. We were able to make all the changes at the bottom layer fast enough. It was the front end changes, which is really where conversion rate and some of the other pieces that people are always wanting get handled. And so then if it's a speed issue, a lot of times the underlying APIs just cannot be faster or they can't be stable enough for the traffic we were hitting. So then we started trying to figure out how could we separate the front end from the back end, which isn't an uncommon goal. People have tried doing headless for a long time. You had the, the presentation layer separated from logic. and So these concepts with the reference architecture were already used at Puma. It was basically just extending that even further. And with the concept of bringing in mobile shopping app, which we didn't have, it was required. So there was just a good opportunity as all of these stars were aligning that we should try something a little bit bigger and dip our toe into GraphQL. So maybe before we dive into the GraphQL part, maybe can you give us an idea of the scale that Puma operates at? Like, I mean, I assume everybody listening knows what Puma is. It's an international brand that's very widely known. But at, at what kind of scale do you operate in terms of these systems, right? How many products are we talking about? How many orders are we talking about? Like, what's the order of magnitude of scale that Puma has? There's not many companies on the planet at that level of scale. If you think about everybody knows Puma, right? How many brands in the world exist that everybody knows, right? There's a very limited number yeah. of those. And so the scale, I'm sure, must be insane. It, it, the scale is definitely big. So the company does over 8 billion euro in, in turnover a year. You can read through annual reports what e-com is, is producing, but the the traffic that we're talking about would be hundreds of millions. And it takes a lot to serve that kind of load. And especially when it comes unexpectedly. And that's where things get really interesting. So it becomes, even though the numbers are high, handling regular traffic, just modern cloud infrastructure can handle it. It's not really a problem. What you run into is services that are charged at a a fee either per visit or session or just API call. And that a lot of that data doesn't need to be fetched from the origin source every time, but it just is. A developer made a decision when they implemented it to allow that to happen. So that was more of a financial issue that comes with the scale. And then the other one where it's actually just being overwhelmed is usually because of a very popular product or a ambassador celebrity ambassador relationship. So if something cool is released, a shoe or a shirt or something, then you've got a problem. And especially if you didn't know it was going to be hot. So that happens occasionally. It's a good problem to have, but it's a horrible problem if you're in the e-commerce digital side. <laughs> and, uh, and that is usually when all of a sudden the sky is falling, everybody's outraged. You can't figure out how this happened. And those are the times that you have to dig out. But that's also some of the excitement of doing this work. And so you'll see though, it's it's when traffic spikes to, I would say, in general, 10,000 plus concurrent shoppers, like not just people on the sites, but people trying to add to cart, creating baskets. Those are the computationally heavy transactional processes inside of the store system where you start reaching the limits of what that system can handle. 
So there's all these different strategies for trying to have a queuing of some sort or invite people in waves, but adding any of those workarounds further complicates all the processes. So you can't just jump to that. I could if it was just Dylan's hat shop.com. <laughs> I could try something different, but when it has to work in all these places and fraud has to be there, like all the things need to work. You just you end up just having to find ways to handle more and more traffic. And unfortunately, we found you, which helped us out of a jam. So thank you. You're welcome. I'm so glad to hear that. <laughs> and so maybe let's talk about kind of the, the technology of Puma as it evolved over time. You're mentioning kind of the, the base bedrock of the ERP system, the PIM, the, the DAM. All of that was kind of set in stone and really what was missing was the innovation on the levels higher up, closer to the end customer that just where the innovation wasn't quite there and the technological advancement wasn't quite there. How did you transform Puma's technology on that front? And in particular, I'm, I'm curious, how did you convince the organization to do that, right? Because I think often technologists, there's a certain element to our love for technology that makes it such that people sometimes do tech for doing tech sick, if you know what I mean, right? It's like, yeah. You're doing something because it's cool or because it's novel or because you think it's interesting and you want to try it out, right? But how do you make decisions for such a large corporation and make sure that you're not just doing take for tech's sake, but take for business's sake and really moving Puma itself forward in the right way? Good question in general. How to get the, the buy-in from senior leadership was being able to very clearly articulate where we were struggling. And so the yeah, tech for tech sake is always the risk of people in technology and also technology projects in general are the most expensive, like most overrun, least likely to succeed types of projects. And I just read a book that was recommended to me. I think it's How Big Things Get Done. Let me check on that real quick. Yeah, How Big Things Get Done. This is absolutely worth a read for anybody that's tackling things like this. What was very interesting is that technology projects were on the same level of nuclear site cleanups that for whatever reason, we as technologists and the organizations surrounding us are just pretty much incapable of doing what we promised. And we're always messing things up. But a few theories of why that's possible, but for now, you can start with this research and see that absolutely that's a problem. So the tech for tech, I think, is is contributing to it, but there's a few other items. And I think what some of it is that it's so easy to get started, and there are so few specifications, requirements. There's not a an ISO standard for how to make a website. So there there isn't anything that says this is the right way to do it. And that's where the Mock Alliance comes in, which I'm an ambassador and board member at the Mock Alliance, who are trying to create some standards so that there is some guardrail for here's a way to run enterprise software without getting yourself into so much issues that can't be resolved or that you wouldn't be able to handle when someone comes at you. So now thinking back to what you asked, how did I basically get the approval from Puma? What I had identified through the previous four years of, of solving these problems was that we were spending an incredible amount of time on the front end changes, but we weren't, we just weren't getting the results that we wanted. There was one project in particular, which was redesigning an area of the site, and it took us 18 months. And I, I just couldn't even believe it. And but that's what it did. And so a huge part of it, when it looked back, was just internal agreement that we could make the change. So, okay, it's it's got a design change in nature that involves a lot of stakeholders. Nobody's really got the authority to just make the decision. So that's going to slow things down. So once we had approval, then development starts. Development still six months before it was actually built and released. Wow, you could actually stand up a whole new site in that time, like let alone change a couple of pages. So that, that was what was happening. And I would say maybe 80% of the work would be front end in nature, whereas that before had been 80% of the work was back end in nature when I was starting. Because the back end got sorted, there wasn't as much to do there. And not that anybody patted us on the back, they just stopped complaining about those issues because <laughs> they were resolved. So now we were moving into almost all front end changes because they were finally able to to address those concerns, 
which is a good thing. So that's that's improvement, that's evolution. Okay, front end's taking a long time. Hey, you want to also have an app. The app's going to rely on the same information that the front end's using. But right now, all the changes that we're talking about, you're kind of combining logic with that front end development. So we need to separate where that data is coming from so that the app could be fed from the same source. And in addition, we were looking at speed. So then the change, that 18 months, that's speed in terms of delivering UX and UI, delivering that at all. Then we looked at how fast is the website once it's running. And there was a study called Milliseconds Make Millions by Google and one of the consulting companies. And um, we feel like we've been lied to because once we started shaving milliseconds, we actually did not see the increase in sales and conversion. So what, what we had promised for speed improvements, even when speed was delivered, did not translate to more sales. Really? So that one was a unfortunate big learning for me in my career was that I think in many cases it can help, but in general, page load, first page load, because that's usually what's being measured, it didn't really make any difference whether it was fast or slow. I'm sure if it's horribly slow, you can tell. But if you're already in the three to four second range, improvement from, from there, at least for a, a brand site like this, did not seem to make an impact. And that for me was really important. I think if I was Amazon.com, it's probably different because people are going there for the transaction. If you're going to a brand site, you're going there for the brand and you're not necessarily in a hurry at that point. And most of the transactions aren't happening on that first session. I think it was something like an average of eight mm. marketing touch points before a conversion of a sale is created. So you, you don't even need to close them then. And then if they've already come to the site, the next time they come back, it'll be way faster. So this measurement issue became an issue after we got the buy-in. So your question was, how do, how do you get approval? Basically identifying that here are the things that are slowing us down. And this is the, the types and the volume of requests we're getting from the business team saying, we want to improve the front end. However you phrase the, the request is like, well, this is front end. That's also front end. That's front end. That's front end. That's front end. That's front end. And the developers and the people that we have are integrations people. They're platform management. They're not front end specialists. They're not writing open source CSS frameworks. They are writing XML integrations to an ecosystem of back end services and trying to turn them into front end people in a matter of weeks just isn't easy. I have to double click on that milliseconds make make millions points because I think that's across the you know big famous retailers like Walmart and Amazon and I think even Target they've all written about how important performance is to their business but essentially what you're saying if I understood that correctly is that because of the specific kind of site that Puma is right people go to the Puma website not because they're shopping for maybe a shoe, right? right? Like they want any shoe and they're just looking for whatever the best option is and they will buy it. They're going to Puma because they want to buy a Puma shoe. And so right. it doesn't really matter whether the website loads, you know, in three seconds or in one second because they want that Puma shoe. It doesn't affect their, in, their buying intent at all, which is really interesting because it's so counter to what a lot of the e-commerce conversations are about, if you think about it, right? A lot of the e-commerce world talks about how important page performances but what you're saying essentially there's an extra nuance there where this might be true for the like amazons and walmarts of the world but that might be less true if you're a brand destination where people just want to go buy that puma shoe and they will go buy that puma shoe if that website loads in 100 milliseconds or in five seconds doesn't really matter i'm sure like you said if it takes you know 30 60 seconds to load a website i'm sure people would drop off at a higher rate but it sounds like that exactly. it's kind of a a bell curve where the performance improvements make sense but then once you get to a certain range you didn't see an impact on conversion at all and the measurement was even harder. I, I still don't feel like there is an accurate measure of speed that we should all be using yet. And that part makes this even more challenging because Google introduces Web Vitals. Before that, we had Lighthouse. Um, and then with these different iterations of how to, basically how Google is trying to measure the quality of websites, we all chase that. 
what I, I keep seeing is that as soon as you get good enough at whatever that measure was, it gets changed. And then the you know, the carrot gets moved again and then some new metrics are added. So there's always this this shifting landscape. But what happens is when you go to make the change, you need really strong front-end developers. And they have to know the code base really well. Otherwise, the change you're making might have really nasty implications. That's just the nature of what we do. But now my big learning, I'd say over the last year, was that we had gone too far in trying to optimize for page load and like basically first page. What made more sense and where we actually saw more of the gain was when we saw what happens to basically our highest value sessions. So when somebody has a large basket, how long does it take for them to add or remove items from that basket? And then these are just processes that are no longer front end. This is the, however the data is structured inside of the storefront system. And that's where I saw the biggest gains was once we started looking at how long did it used to take a 15 product cart to remove one item from the cart? or to add one more. That wasn't something I even knew was a problem. And then when we started seeing how long it actually took, like, oh my gosh. And then afterwards, when we made these changes and started working with the APIs directly and optimizing these queries, we really made that fast. And so it's a different measure that Google doesn't have one for that. So there isn't anything. And so it's it's the measurement that is causing unmet expectations or when you meet that speed goal which is a really technical item you end up with no improvement in conversion so the investment is just wasted and that's what like so if i could wave any flag for people it's that this milliseconds make millions only helps in some cases and it's not on first page load i think it's more on these incremental steps so that when it when you enter something where you're doing any sort of database process that feels fast. Just loading the page can all be done from cache. So that that one's mostly about eliminating things that get shoved in from a tag manager. It's not about database queries. Then you get frustrated when you find something you like and nothing happens and you're waiting and waiting. It's not the page load, it's the interaction. And that's where we were trying to figure out ways to optimize that strategy. What are we gonna cache here? Which queries are actually required? When we run a request, like what happens on the back end? Oh my gosh, there's all this stuff we didn't know was going on. There's promotion lookups, there's this and that. Whoa, nobody knew this was happening. And so what happened when you start digging in deeper is you uncover all of these areas that nobody's ever, ever looked at before. And each one of those potentially introduces a tech for tech option. And that's where you did the strong product management to say, whew, okay, I'm glad we know that now. I'm also terrified. Let's focus on this. So then it's about focus, 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 because as soon as you start working on this stuff, you you open up a huge can of worms. Wow, that that blows my mind. This I guess one question I have is with with Google specifically being so focused on these very specific metrics that they apparently keep shifting underneath your feed, where you have to keep yeah. working towards new metrics that are completely different. Did you at least see an impact on the SEO performance of Puma and, then, and, and, and did that correlate with business success or did that not matter at all either for the specific business that Puma is? Was it more about, okay, let's really just focus on that add to cart, remove to cart, making sure that the interaction is as instant as possible so that people can go through the checkout as easily as possible? These are all tough to measure. And so that's where right. <laughs> I, I really, I, I can't say with with confidence that any one of those was improved other than sales went up. So we know that much, but there's so many things happening at the same time. And in every country, they're doing something differently. They're also measuring things like conversion differently, add to cart rate, whatever it is, they're, each country runs their business differently. And so to say with confidence that this is exactly what happened is, is tough. And what you, you can look at though is how, so that, that's now you look at other metrics, the, the Dora metrics, the cycle time and velocity, mean time to recovery, those metrics, I believe came out of IT revolutions research, but Google also has endorsed, seem to be a better measure of what a group like a technology team, like I've been leading, is is there to deliver against. So then what you're really talking about is 
when an idea comes out of somebody's head or we get some research, how long would it take for us to put that into action? If we can iterate on the ideas quickly enough, then we can be wrong more often because we can improve it. We can also be right more often because we could also prove it. If it's, here's the concept, we won't have it live for nine months. You have no idea what else happened during that period. And you think about the last three years, a lot happens in nine months. And so you can't confidently say that it was because this site was faster or because we had optimized this query. You just can't. So what I would encourage is that you focus on how long does it take from concept to delivery of the concept. And so a good chunk of that will be internal approval that we're going to work on it. So that's one issue that is almost not technology relevant, but it's mostly a technical outcome that people want. So that's usually where you focus then on all the product management work. So once you get the ideas flowing in and they're, they're clear, then you can say, all right, from idea created, how long does it take us to pick that issue up, finish coding, and get it live in production? And that's what I believe would be a better measure of the the value of the investment that companies are making in teams like mine. How quickly can you get these things through? And then you find out, is it fast enough? And this is where you can compare those metrics, as Dora metrics, to the industry. You can also compare them to yourself. And then it's not so subjective. It's It's objective. Here it is. This is the measure. This is how fast we move. So then whether it's an SEO change, it's a data quality change, it's anything to do with security, or it's a conversion-focused UX or UI change, how long does it take us to get these through the pipe? And that, I think, is a much better measure rather than saying, is the site this fast? Does it look red? Like, how quickly could you make it blue? Oh, how long would that take? We actually know. That's what we want. And I would say, so according to these metrics, the elite organizations release more than once a day, once or more a day, which is almost nobody. That was the part, like they're elite. When we're releasing multiple times a day and everyone's like, can you do this faster? I was like, nobody does it faster than this. (laughs) It's just because we've now given you this, you think we could go even faster. And that part is now what I would go back in time and do is say, instead of us focusing on these milliseconds, let's focus on lead time to change. And that actually more than anything else is likely to be a good indicator of the successful outcome of this organization. That really resonates with me, particularly because in the startup world, there's this kind of common truth that everybody lives by that the main thing that matters for your success as an early stage startup is your iteration speed. And for many startups, that is technology iteration speed, right? For the most part, it's about how fast can you learn what doesn't work in your product and then how fast can you fix it? Just like you're saying for your e-commerce website, how fast can you make the change that the business needs and get it tested? Because the truth of the matter is, this, our entire industry is so young, and like you said, there's, there's no standards, that every single change that you're making is unlikely to be the best or the right change, right? It's likely that there's an even better change that you're going to learn about once you ship that change and you learn what happens, right? You ship a change, you make the website blue, and suddenly something happens, right? And then you can learn and go, oh, that's interesting, what if we tried doing this other thing, right? And you can make a new change. And this is commonly accepted wisdom in the, in the, in, in the startup ecosystem, and is kind of heralded as one of the main advantages that startups have over incumbents because they're smaller and more nimble and they can iterate much more quickly. And so that really resonates with me kind of focusing on, hey, the impact that we can have as a technology organization is we can make the changes that the business requests really, really quickly so that the business organization can learn much faster and get to whatever the best or the right solution is much faster. Exactly. So that was the last piece of the the sales pitch to, to business was, if we can move faster, you can try the things that you need, and then we should be able to make more money. Uh, ultimately, that's what it's about. And the developers were stuck with a very limited opportunity. So I, two pieces. One one was the content management. So in general, definitions are a piece of this puzzle as well. A common vocabulary is really important for moving fast and having clearly met people's expectations. Getting that common vocabulary is really difficult when there's already one in place that is insufficient for talking about some of the things that we've been discussing here. So when people don't understand or they already have a wrong assumption, 
you spend almost all of your time just educating, and then you're not actually doing the work to deliver the change. But the content management system, there wasn't a common CMS to use to publish to Puma.com or App. So then you'd end up with a very fractured way of publishing and also a, a fractured way of doing analysis on the content that was published. So if everyone's doing it differently, well, what image did they use? I can't really tell. They use the same file name, but they cropped it differently. And so things like that, that like, wow, that's okay. <laughs> we don't know if this image works or not because we allow this process that is very manual. Let's try to improve this by automating what we can and centralizing what we can. And then that involves digital asset management work. That involves more of the creative teams, more of the marketing teams. Now you're moving away from what would have been core e-commerce digital into brand marketing. And these are some areas where it's just more organizational issues that start to get in the way. It's not a technology issue anymore. And so what, um, what I identified was just these are all of the different CMS instances or what I would consider a CMS that allow you to lay out and merchandise your assortment and, and give your brand representation in that country. And when you see it laid out as like an individual gridded item, you're like, whoa, that's a lot more than anybody thought about. Okay? <laughs> this is like we're nearing you know, 50 CMS instances when we really didn't think about it that way. What if there was one? Okay, that sounds better, but that also means we have to work together. So what would we include? What would we not? So it becomes more about a, a data structure, data modeling problem. And I, I say we underestimated that complexity because we had wrapped up so much of what happens in the UI into this like front end CMS storefront service that isn't really it's just not built for that. It's built for a catalog and products and searching and wish lists. It's not built for all of the brand entities that you want to be able to pull on and all the third-party services you also want to be able to integrate with. And that was where the central CMS, you have to decide what goes in it and then what's going to be moved somewhere else. So there's a lot of architecture work. There's a long roundabout way of talking through what it ended up taking to make this work. But so you had initially, we moved to from almost all backend integration changes to almost all front-end optimization changes. The developers working on that weren't as skilled in it, so they were struggling. It was costing more, taking longer. Our teams internally weren't necessarily ready to be making good Jira issues that were easy to act on, I guess, like they knew what they wanted and they wanted the right things. But when it, they articulated it, it didn't resonate with the developer in a way, either because of language or culture or whatever, that they got what they wanted. And then we had this many CMS instance concept that we could aggregate under one, bringing in a, an app. If you had 50 CMSs, you would need 50 app integrations. That was like, this is untenable. And then this development process of allowing somebody to see their change before it goes into production or staging was a problem. And that, that was the last big piece. How can a developer safely make this iteration? We're talking about how fast for this, this cycle time. They want to iterate on something and they want to show it to somebody. In many of these storefront service worlds, you actually have to basically put it into service to try it, which is terrifying. <laughs> and, and so first it's scary so the developer doesn't want to do it until they're really 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 confident so that means what 90 percent probably couldn't even put it up and they have to wait another week another two weeks whatever it is then once it's there it's basically even if it's not in production it's waiting to be pushed into production and so the next release which are scheduled the wrong stuff might go live and so this was the the big bottleneck and that more than anything was slowing us down in my opinion. So the alternative was, was let's create a way to have a preview environment on demand per pull request so that you no longer need to use this staging production system from the storefront provider. This is our own. This is an isolation. This is our startup world. So now 
Puma can have their own startup ecosystem where innovative ideas can be tested, tried, but actually pull against production data if that's what you want to configure the pipes to. You don't have to put it over there in production. It's not sitting in a production system that customers are using. It's just got production level services so that when the user is testing it, they have full production speed. That was key. Everybody sees it like this is slow. It's like it's not slow. The service it's connected to is slow. If you connect it to production APIs, it's fast. But in general, you can't do that. You're stuck in this isolated, protected area that just doesn't have the resources of the rest of the site. So these were the big issues that we were facing. And in different, you know, different rooms, I'd have a different set of slides depending on who we're talking to. Eventually, you have this huge deck of everything. But, um, <laughs> At the end of the day, we had shown that by switching to our own kind of React template that we could have a faster site. We could actually hit the green marks from Google's page speed scores. We could get what we needed. Adding all of the marketing tags, everything else, making it look exactly like current existing.com website. That takes time. Each one of those changes slows it down a little bit. But at the end of the day, you can move fast. And that was really what I believe was the best thing to invest in was being able to iterate quickly because when the business acquires somebody has a new concept for a business model wants to engage consumers and the public in a different way they'd actually be able to do it and do it in a matter of days or weeks not quarters or years i love this kind of reframing of the impact of the technology organization from like performance for example right like we were focused on making everything super fast and that leads to more revenue to really be like, okay, the impact of the technology organization is for the business to be able to do its thing. So we have to be able to iterate quickly and get these changes live quickly so that the business can try more things. And it sounds like there was quite a journey in terms of the technology setup, and maybe let's dive into that to, to close us off here. What does Puma's technology look like today? When, when I visit puma.com, what is that whole stack of technology that you have running and which pieces have worked well and which pieces have you had to switch out over time that didn't quite prove their worth? The, okay, so I'm, I'm thinking of myself as a network request. Uh, <laughs> so I'm coming in and asking to see Puma.com. You're going to be first going through Cloudflare for DNS and then Fastly, and I think is what you'd be seeing in general for uh, the initial routing and then uh, some fraud and different early checks and then potentially some edge workers doing some things in CDN edge. So that, that's where you already start adding complexity if you're not careful. And so as much as possible, I try to keep keep things centralized and that way it's just easier to make these changes until it, you're really confident that you know how it works and that everyone understands and that they can react. But so then as you get more comfortable moving more things into the edge just make more sense and it's faster. But then so now after you've gotten into the site, you're either going in through an app or you're going through the website and you're going to be in AWS or Google Cloud or Azure and I guess even Heroku, kind of depending on what it is. So that cloud environment is kind of interchangeable in a lot of ways as it should be because either the vendor decides to switch who their provider is for infrastructure or Puma makes it decides to change something. So you'll see infrastructure being automatically deployed, Terraform like trying to, to make everything as automatic as possible, but with manual controls. And then um, React or React Native will be running the front-end framework and Next.js. So I've got server-side rendering in Next.js. And these are the types of things that I wanted to make choices that were going to make developers want to work with us and especially the developers that we wanted. So we're looking at Stack Overflow surveys, what do people desire? What are they using? What do they hate? What do they love? And trying to avoid the ones that didn't work out and trying to lean into the ones that aren't the newest, but they definitely have a big community. They're stable. Um, mm -hmm. The risks are well known so that you can make sure you're you're working around them. So I, I don't like things that are brand new. I like I like it personally, but not in business. And uh, so we looked at what would be kind of that ideal stack and mostly forming it around open source so that we can, I wouldn't say 
to save money on the open source side. It's more like this is the the most used software on the planet. It's going to cost us a lot to run whatever it is, but what is going to work and what's constantly being evolved. And then it was in the prototyping stage down to, well, which is fastest? So in our limited testing, found that Next.js ran faster than than the alternatives. So it's okay, let's start there. And then the TypeScript discussion. Do we do TypeScript or not? The decision was made that Actually, yeah, static typing would be helpful and is a good idea. We use that in Java and some other services throughout the organization. This seems like a worthwhile move. Not all of our developers had used TypeScript, but heavily Node and JavaScript. So these were things that we weighed and evaluated. What would allow us to move fast? And what allows us to move fastest is the most popular ecosystem. And that was also part of the decision for AWS. It's the one that most people are comfortable with. All of the different infrastructure services have different specialties, but I I wanted to be able to let people feel comfortable because if if they're comfortable, they're going to move faster and they're going to make fewer mistakes. That makes sense. And then I love that focus on technology that, because again, if you're thinking through it from the intentional, like how can we iterate faster? How can technology provide value to business angle? Then kind of your reasoning of let's choose technology that's modern enough that developers love it because that's honestly most of what developers are about, right? They they love working with modern technology and not something that's really old and feels crafty. So you're choosing modern technology, but you also don't want to be kind of on the bleeding edge of everything where you're going to get cut all the time with really annoying things that you just don't want to have to deal with, right? Because they just slow you down again. And so you're kind of picking and choosing the technologies that it sounds like that developers love, but that are also battle-tested enough to scale and where many of the problems are already solved so that you don't have to solve them for yourself. How does GraphQL fit into that picture? What are you using GraphQL for today at Puma and, and how is that working out? GraphQL was the recommendation to to be able to move faster towards the React front-end, the React Native front-end. And what was attractive about GraphQL was, I guess, we'd also been looking at different ways to handle API management and ultimately decided that this was what was required to solve the problems that we had, which was that front-end iteration and being able to come up with a single interface for the web and the app. And that would allow it to scale out faster. Otherwise, you're going to be delayed a year on every app rollout while you kind of custom plummet to each different country. So what GraphQL allowed us to do was insulate kind of new group of front-end developers that didn't have to know the intricacies of Salesforce in particular. And so then now you could have non-Salesforce certified developers helping. And before that was very difficult because in order to do any changes, you needed a Salesforce developer login. You had to have basic training that you know how this platform works. And when you stop publishing into that platform and start publishing pages and content outside of it, that's no longer an issue. You finally decoupled, you have headless, call it whatever you want, composable, but that was where GraphQL came in. So that was what allowed us to let the front end teams have the flexibility and freedom that they needed while keeping Salesforce right where it was doing what it does best and moving that front end iterative process out of Salesforce. They still have the templates there if you ever need to fall back on them, but you don't need to use them anymore. And now you can start to use the APIs that Salesforce was developing because we also weren't leveraging all those because it was you know all inside the monolith. You didn't need to call the APIs. You had the hooks directly in the reference architecture that you could use in the templating to just fake it. So when you start actually pulling these pieces apart, that's when you start finding out that, wow, Salesforce probably did a bunch of optimization on their own for their internal services. When it's like a public API, it doesn't work the same way. And that's where we got caught on the bleeding edge of something that's 20 years old. But the bleeding edge part was some of these these newer APIs that weren't battle tested, but we were kind of under the impression that they would handle the load, but needed improvement. And so it sounds like GraphQL kind of became this abstraction layer over, I'm guessing Salesforce, but also Magento and whatever other kind of CMSs the different regions used that were instead of, if I understand this correctly, instead of kind of having to understand Salesforce and how to get a product out of Salesforce, you send a GraphQL query that requests a product and the GraphQL layer figures out how to communicate that to Salesforce or Magento or whatever other CMS that data is in. And so the you kind of decoupled the client developers to be able to move faster without having to understand all of this 
backend stuff where you have specialized people working on that as well. Is that kind of the, the setup that That's you're That's a good right way now? to describe it. Right. And the, the CMS that was chosen is Sanity, sanity.io. And that element of having a formal CMS as opposed to using the, the Salesforce content modeling. And I wouldn't call it a CMS because it, you know, it just doesn't <laughs> check those boxes for me. But the way you store content in it and deliver it is very um, just dated and, and there's very little visual about it. So the GraphQL abstraction includes content management in a way that you can receive content from the CMS. That CMS could be then patched into Salesforce if, if the endpoint existed or we created it, but it was basically creating, in my mind, what's actually required for a modern enterprise to exist online. So you've got brand content, you have these things that, that shouldn't and don't exist in a PIM system or wouldn't be stored in your in your storefront or there isn't a place where you put it. If it's in there, you've faked it somehow. But that content beyond just the core is available now through the GraphQL layer. So then that means if you're a front-end person working on some sort of cool change, you have all the information that you would need already in the query. And then if you don't, you can also rapidly extend the structured data model for content to have that now. And you're not going back to Salesforce and trying to make them schedule either a release next year or a custom development to, to try to make it happen now. It's just, boom, there it is. And now we have extended the data model. That's live. Automatically, the UI is extended for the CMS. Now that's something that can be edited. All this can be done in minutes and not years. And that's what allows you to move fast. So this was where GraphQL was the, I still believe the best choice for being that aggregation between this ever expanding CMS concept and that core of what shopping is. And then dialing in what that core of shopping really means so that you're not abusing the storefront service anymore because the business is asking for something that shouldn't be done. And so instead we say, all right, that's the concept. We want to pull this data and we want it on this frequency. Does it need to be cached? Are you going to use it for anal analytics? Like what needs to be here? And it, it's a, just a different way to handle a lot of the requests. And so once the GraphQL piece comes in, you have to be thinking data in addition to functionality and the way it's presented. So that brings that last third leg of the stool is you got the data, you've got the interface, you got the presentation. And it used to be, here's how I want it to look. And developer just goes and makes the dream come true. And now we're able to say, okay, you're going to do that, but we're going to actually open three different issues. One in React, one in React Native, one in GraphQL. And once you do that, the person over in React Native can't just make this change that nobody could ever undo. They're going to have to talk to somebody else about it. And it's going to be very clear the data model is extended here. This reminds me of something that we say internally at Stellate quite a fair bit, which is that the organizations that successfully adopt GraphQL are ones that are solving kind of organizational human challenges through technology instead of, yes. again, doing technology for technology's sake because it's cool or because they think they you know, have some benefits, right? It's really a solution to human problems. And it sounds like for you, it was, you know, individual developers on one client making changes that affected everybody that could never be undone because now the mobile app's deployed and people are using that mobile app. And so you can never roll that API change back because they rely on that change. And so now they have to go talk to somebody else and they have to be like, well, I'm making a change to the graphical layer. Would that work for you too, right? Does that change exactly. also match what you're expecting? And if we can't roll this back, is it okay for this to stay in there permanently? You're absolutely right. This is about solving organizational problems more than anything else. So it's a little bit about technology, almost all about organization. And then let me let me close off maybe with a, with a question that obviously I have to ask. How, how does Stellate fit into that? So Stellate was a recommendation again from the developers because we had these slow origin API responses. And so most of the complaints from the business were about the speed of some, some specific pages, which then really it was very specific requests, these queries that took too long. And after you dig in, you find out that there isn't anything we can do at the origin, at least not for months. So then how can we figure out how to cache this? And GraphQL has some black magic in it. Can't quite understand how all of it works, but it does create very complicated queries. And I think in, in some of those cases, 
we were getting kind of inadvertently burned by some of these queries that were involving multiple API requests or different SQL queries to be run that we didn't anticipate. And when you don't own the database, you can't even necessarily know what, what was run, like what was executed against the database. So you don't know. So it takes a quite a bit of time and coordination to get into that, that level of detail. So with Stelly, we could skip that and just cache the response. <laughs> so now you can say, these are the issues that we want to solve. Let's speed this up. And so then working with your team, you're able to figure out, you know, how can we do it? What should we cache? And then able to bring down some of our costs at these different services that are charging per API request and able to speed up the user's experience or perceived experience when they're actually browsing the site. So I would say GraphQL on its own certainly doesn't solve all the problems, but it does introduce some some new caching complexity that you don't have otherwise. And so it, you were able to do with Stellate was resolve those caching issues so that you essentially have either a permanent fix or time to fix the underlying problem because you've got the cover of Stelly and then basically because you're always finding the next problem. So you say, all right, here's one that we can cache. All right, how long can we cache it? Is it worth it? All right, here's a runaway cost area. Okay, let's not ask for that on every page load or as often as we were. Let's cache that. So it becomes a lot about caching and this is where I, I can see the, um, the API management capabilities of an organization being a limiting factor as they go to take undertake these types of projects and i think that's where we end up in the nuclear waste category of tech projects but that you um there's so many things to uncover when you're stepping into this so we're not on the bleeding edge but certainly still leading for enterprises this is not stuff that everyone's done before even the people who have been in it for a long time e-commerce as like so retail e-commerce has been pushing a lot further than many other industries and so i think there's a stronger network of people working on this in retail. You'll see more of the service providers focused on retail as their business industry target because there's just so much happening at these e-com transactions that need to push this limit. They need to find ways to make this faster, smarter, cheaper, and they just have so many people buying online. So what I'm, I'm seeing now is that you've got this early adoption in e-com of all these services and now you're solving problems for Puma, they're going to be beneficial for someone in any other B2B environment or kind of direct to consumer, but maybe not such high volume, but you're, you'll be able to solve these problems for everybody. But I do see the e-com is the one bloodying their nose on a lot of these AI search and AI-based machine learning-based recommendations. We've been doing this for years. A lot of people right now are getting into AI. People forget that we've been doing it for a long time. <laughs> But you just see that e-com's done a lot of this already. So it's nice that you can just reapply the same concept all over the place. And the caching, two hardest things in computer science, naming things and cache and validation. So that that's where I do see most of the opportunity to avoid painful runaway costs, service usage as with this GraphQL caching, and also to just speed up what normally you didn't think you needed to cache or you you just didn't before. Once you start asking for it as an API, as opposed to an entire page bolted together and shipped, you have to start caching differently. And not everybody knows how to do it or even what's worth caching. And you don't find out until you really start digging. But if you're doing this type of work, you're not likely to have enough time to dig into all of these different pages and all these API requests. And that's where Sunny Stelly allows you to just put this blanket over it. And and that, that might be good enough. And that's where I also want to stop you like, Good enough is good enough. Time to stop. Let's move on to the next problem. But in other cases, it's give us time. We'll come back to it. Or actually, this is the permanent fix. And uh, there's no way to really know which one it's going to be when you put it in place. But it's nice to have something that you can just rapidly insert as cache management. And then going back, do you do it in Cloudflare? Do you do it in Fastly? Do you do it in AWS? Do you do it in Stellate? Where do you put it? I want the developers to be in control of it. So a person who's working as closely as possible to where the API requests are happening should be the ones in control of the cache management. I don't necessarily want to give those people all access to our DNS. So I view Stellate as in the right zone of the developer. They're the ones trying to optimize this. They should be the ones allowed to manage the cache. I think that's. I think what you're highlighting there as well is one of the the benefits of choosing technologies that developers like and yet that have matured at least to a certain extent is that you get 
the standardization of tools, right? And the reason we can do it, so like what we do, is because GraphQL is a standard, right? So we can build this GraphQL caching, and it doesn't really matter to us what kind of a GraphQL API you have, right? That could be coming from Sanity, that could be your custom backend, that could be Shopify, that could be WordPress. It doesn't, it really doesn't matter, right? It's all GraphQL. And so we can understand it and we can do the caching for you. And I think that's one of the big benefits of what you were also talking about, tying the thread back to what you mentioned initially with the standardization of the web stack as our industry is going to evolve over the coming years and decades probably, I'm sure there will be more and more standardization as you're also working towards with the Mac Alliance. And that standardization is going to allow a lot of innovation to happen because once everybody's doing something a certain way, suddenly you can build a solution once and everybody can use it, right? Rather than everybody having to build the solution again for their specific use case and their specific setup, right? They're doing the same work over and over and over again, which is kind of currently what happens for the most part in, in our whole engineering industry, I would say. The rework again and again and again, it's exhausting and counterproductive, but it feels good to see things happening. And so there's an element of patience that a lot of managers don't have. And if you can't be patient, it's really tough to do this type of work. It takes a long time. And And I constantly see that people just don't, they can't wait that long. Like I need to see a result quickly. Fantastic put GraphQL in, like you'll be able to iterate quickly. You're going to add some other complexities, but you could move faster. And so like, that's where say velocity at the end of the day, that, that's what you're concerned about. Like, and the whole, the whole process, how long to ship a change. And if you can do that fast, fantastic. And then if you start to see that for this area, we're slow, then you got a problem. And I saw for GraphQL, that was where we got the fastest and fantastic to see full automated deployments like oh it's glorious (laughs) but that was it's invisible to the business though this one like only the tech people can really go have beautiful (laughs) dreams about automatic deployment from a pull request in graphql but that's what it takes and so then if you can measure application by application or repo by repo however you want to do it you can see where you're slowing down but also to say holy crap this is fast we should be very proud of ourselves and we should stop now this is fast enough we don't need to go any faster and if we do we're going to break things so it's cool to see that of the concept basically everything we had hope to achieve with the exception of the milliseconds making us millions really worked out and that like i really I couldn't be prouder of, of what was done it's fantastic that's amazing congratulations dylan and i think that leaves us at a good place to close off this episode thank you so much for taking the time i'm kind of i'm sad that i have to interview because that means i don't get to take notes as much because i can't <laughs> you know take notes and interview thoughtfully at the same time i'm going to re-listen to this episode right away and just kind of take some notes on all the things that you shared because i think this journey and all these learnings of around, you know, standards are really important and choosing technology that developers love and that are at the same time mature enough to have a little bit of standardization around and a little bit of tooling and you won't be at the cutting edge getting blade. And all the learnings you've shared are absolutely incredible. If people want to learn more about you, follow your work and whatever you're you're doing next, where, where should they go? Just follow me on LinkedIn. That's probably the best place to reach out. Write to me. If you don't hear from me, it's because you didn't tell me what you learned. So you'll see on my profile, if you read it, you're supposed to tell me something that you learned and I'll respond. And so that that's the best place to reach me. I'll be at the Mock Alliance Mach 2 event in Amsterdam, and that'll be a good one in June. I'd recommend anybody to, to join us there. For me, that's, that's key. We talked about it. We do this together. Like I can't do this work without the help of people like you. And you meet each other at these conferences. So the, the industry events while they can seem overwhelming or too much or whatever, that's where a lot of this happens. And people who try to ignore it or say that it doesn't, like it's that is where people discuss these ideas, their problems, and solve them. And then you go back and agree that we're going to try that solution together. And so then someone has to come with the funding, somebody's got to come with the ideas, somebody's got to bring the developers, and then we figure out if it can work or not. And that's where hopefully we can figure it out in a few months. And that's the big difference between the projects that go well and the initiatives that go poorly. If it takes longer than a few months to figure out if it's working, you're already going to be in trouble when you get to the end. So I want to see that rapid innovation, rapid testing. And and that's like, Stelly, we turned it on. It took almost no time at all. Us talking about it took five times as long as actually putting it in place. 
And then once we did, everybody was like, wow, that was fantastic. Why did we wait? And that's what you want to see. But it takes being part of that industry, going to those events and having the whole network of your group also going to the events because they'll go into the different niche events that they're part of. And that was it. So I believe this came out of a React Native team. And so that was, that's how we found Stellium Graph. QL caching. So like that's that to me is important. And if people want to do anything, it's go to these events because that's where it really happens. That's a beautiful call out. So we'll link your LinkedIn in the show notes and as well as the Mac Alliance and uh, the Mac 2 conference in Amsterdam later this year. Thank you all for joining and listening. Thank you, Dylan, for joining and taking the time to chat with us. This was a fascinating conversation and I can't Great. wait to see what happens next. All right. Thank you, Max. Beautiful. Beautiful.